Welcome back. My name is Justin Bullock. Here once again, I'm with a few Bush School students. And here once again, they're going to enlighten you on how to make better decisions, particularly if you're interested in public service. But I'd like to begin by letting the team introduce themselves. And uh, I guess we'll let Harrison go first, but that seems risky all on its own. And then we'll catch all the group members and then uh, can kind of orient me to what you decided to focus on in your project, all right? Uh, hello, I'm Harrison Dolly. Madison Mato, Paola Martinez. And Nick Partipillo. Awesome. So thanks again for your work. Uh, thanks for being willing to talk to me. This is, because uh, you can see on my face, I, this is a lot of excitement for me. <laughs> so uh, the audience can't see that. You only get the audio. Um, but if you would, go ahead and orient me on how you laid out your project. Um, so we laid out the project in the uh, following manner. First, we decided to focus on the neuroeconomics of uh, public servants and how uh, that kind of science has become to be a big part in studying decision making amongst public service within uh, public servants within the public sector. And then we actually moved on to the public itself. And instead of looking about how public servants can affect the decision making of the public, we wanted to determine how the public um, makes decisions when they involve themselves, whether it's via uh, direct citizen participation, such as voting in a referendum, or making their voices heard um, so that movement can be made on a certain political issue or topic. And then finally, we um, investigated some real-world examples that have happened, um, whether it was last year or two years ago, that kind of lay out some of these biases and heuristics between public servants and uh, the public that we cover in our paper. Excellent. That's a great overview. You've taken a little bit of a different tack, so I'm pretty excited to mm -hmm. learn what all you've done here. So, uh, Nate, go ahead. So, we started off by identifying uh, 14 key heuristics that we thought had a big implementation by public servants. We're not going to go over 14 now, but. Get your hands and toes ready, yeah. hands and toes. We focused on ones that were identified by Kahneman and Thinking Fast and Slow, as well as outside research and how they are um, intertwined with public service. So, the three I'm going to focus on are cognitive ease, trusting expert intuition, and confidence over doubt. Excellent. So the cognitive ease, the basically kind of describes it as our system two, our brain is lazy, and system two is much harder to work than our system one, which is a recurring theme in a lot of these biases, and how it's easier for us to understand things that are easier. We are biased toward things that are easy to understand or that are repeated to us. We want, our brains want to be as lazy as possible, and we don't want to be analytical. So a real-world example of this in public service is with Donald Trump in the 2016 campaign. He offered his supporters that, he was, that they were going to build the wall and it was going to solve illegal immigration. Illegal immigration is a huge, complex problem that plagues countries across the world. But so by repeatedly saying, oh, we're going to build the wall, 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 people begin to think, oh, well, that's the easy solution. Once this wall is built that Mexico is paying for, then illegal immigration will be solved completely. That is not the case. But he was able to use cognitive ease to his advantage to get his supporters to get behind him in that. Mm -hmm. And so how to how public servants can fight cognitive ease and the laziness of our system um, of our brain and try to use light system two is really allowing our system two to work as opposed to falling back. It's hard not to be lazy, but the more analytical we are and the, the more we realize that there aren't easy problems to comp complex solutions, the better we can do at fighting that. When it comes to trusting expert intuition, uh, Kahneman in Thinking Fast Slow described it as the allowance of a belief to take strong form within our minds when there are no contradictions if it comes from someone we perceive as an expert. Um, 
He says this is incredibly dangerous as he believes that experts make broad assumptions on things they don't know if they're still an expert in the field. That, oh, I know a good amount about this, so whatever I don't know is unimportant. Um, Kahneman, like a lot of professors, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Kahneman did say that there are two, uh, two situations in which you can truly trust an expert intuition. He says those are when the, field the expert is highly, the, when the field of the expert is highly predictable and when the expert has become one through prolonged practice and exposure to that, through that specific field. I believe Kahneman used a chess master as an example in the book as chess is a predictable game, chess isn't international affairs. Yeah. So trusting the expert intuition of someone in international affairs might not be as good idea as a grand chess master. Um, an example of this real world, uh, real world example of this um, I used was the U.S. decision to evade Iraq after the 9-11 bombings. Um, mm -hmm. President George Bush trusted his expert advisors, whether those were his cabinets, generals, that you know there are weapons of mass destruction here and we need to go find them and stop them, and he trusted them when that was not the case. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the two key steps to this are again literally are following Kahneman's example and just making sure that if you're going to trust the expert, make sure they fall into those categories of a highly predictable field and prolonged exposure in the field to become an expert. And then finally is confidence over doubt, uh, which is described as System 1's ability to piece together coherent thoughts from separate information and the failing of System 2 to analyze and be skeptical of the story we have built for ourselves. Um, Kahneman talks about how we want to build connections when there aren't there. Humans don't like the idea of simply random occurrences happening when that is the case. The quote from this that stuck with me was, we must accept the differences, the different outcomes, we must accept that different outcomes were due to blind luck. And he states the humans are not a fan of this. Um, the conference over doubt example I used was from Japan bombing Pearl Harbor on the, uh, uh, during World War II. They were confident that their ability to cripple our naval supply and that a surprise attack, or not our naval supply, our naval force, and a surprise attack would clearly knock us out of the war and not give us a great example to completely militarize our society and completely change the impact of the war, which is what happened, actually. They were too confident in their ability to truly cripple our naval forces and that that strike would deter us from joining the war. And so they can avoid... Uh, public servants can avoid comments over doubt by focusing on aggregated data and not allowing their minds to build narratives they want to see. So the theme here is engaging your system to rational planning, mm -hmm. using evidence, knowing that you're prone to overconfidence, and trying to adjust accordingly. And understanding the limitations of your own expertise, all those sorts of things. We have, we have, lim we have limits. That's yes, surprisingly. Uh, oh, man. <laughs> no, no, what am I going to do now? Okay, good. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then just shifting gears um, to another three, um, biases, I looked at primarily um, priming, the halo effect, and uh, confirmation bias. Um, and so starting with priming, it's when you're constantly exposed to this one idea and it like primes you to think about, um, think a certain way. And so if we look at post 9-11 news outlets, like constantly saying, or attaching, you know, terrorism with the Islamic faith, or with just the Middle East in general. Um, we see the effects of people hearing that over and over again still today, mm -hmm. almost two decades two decades later. Um, Holy cow, this goes to two decades. Uh, yeah. Man, okay. <laughs> and I was writing it out and I was like, wait, oh my god. <laughs> it's been 18 years almost, yeah. oh wow. And, okay. and yet a lot of us still remember like everything that we heard mm -hmm. since then. Um, and similarly with the halo effect, um, your immediate, what you know automatically at the beginning of something or of someone affects how you think of them without even doing more research or learning more. 
And so you look at um, the 2018 elections, the midterms, and you see like um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and how um, she was either immediately liked by so many people or immediately hated by so many people. And there was a lot of people don't give it time to really learn about what her policies were and they automatically were like either completely for or completely against her. Um, which leads me to confirmation bias, actually. Um, uh, in one study that I looked at, um, the authors, Koblock, Westerwick, and all like 20-something people on his paper, <laughs> um, looked at how if you look at political information online, you're always searching things that confirm what you're thinking. Mm -hmm. or what you're already thinking. So if I already think that Ocasio-Cortez is a terrible candidate, I'm going to be searching for information that aligns with what I'm thinking. Whereas um, in order to combat that, you should really look at you know, the other side of it, maybe see where she's coming from or what, where her stance is coming from. Um, so this halo effect and confirmation bias are really like toxic combination right particularly Absolutely. in the political sphere because exactly. right? you can imagine like you decide immediately whether you like or don't like a politician will take someone highly charged like donald trump or hillary clinton right and once you've made a decision that you do or do not like that person then all the evidence that you go seeking is to confirm that rather than to disconfirm that right and media plays a role in this like media choices whether you choose to watch fox news or msnbc but as we mentioned earlier, uh, with the previous group, it definitely plays out as well in your social media. Absolutely. Right? Because right? You've, you've deliberately picked who your friends are and what pages you like and what information is coming to you. Absolutely. And that feeds in stuff that you already like, right? And so you've already decided you've liked Donald Trump's page or you've liked Hillary Clinton's page and you've already decided that you like them and you get all this information that just feeds back into that narrative rather than looking for information that might cause you to be wrong about that person mm -hmm. or to have a more nuanced uh, version of that person because we all prefer this our brains are lazy so we prefer this real simple straightforward narrative hillary clinton good hillary clinton bad right. donald trump good donald trump bad yeah right? and actually like when we started this research and we started the book uh, kahneman's book i actually looked at my social media and tried to see like well what news outlets do i follow what uh, politicians do I follow and I really saw a very specific way of thinking mm -hmm. in my follows and I was like maybe I should I should add you know some outlets that I don't always listen to, or read or listen to or whatever and now my feed is a lot different than it was mm -hmm. maybe a month or two ago um, but it's I think it's really cool to see like yeah and it's really interesting in the classroom so I've been teaching here at the Bush School for goodness five years now and it's it's interesting to me as all of you come and go mm -hmm. and I have the same classroom year after year that whatever the talking points and whatever the language being used by the media or by the political elites show up in my classroom yeah right so like in the past few years right people have been right it's been like we're in election year people are like really quick to dismiss even their friends who might be like of a different political persuasion because mm -hmm. they take that halo effect and anyone that's a Democrat, they hate, right? <laughs> or anybody that's a Republican, they despise, right? It causes tension in the classroom and tension in families and all the ways in which 
all of us have good characteristics and bad characteristics, right? These simple stories don't really fit. And this is really important for public servants, one, because they're often playing the role of managers and making decisions that impact people, but they're often out deciding who's getting benefits and who's getting help and who's not getting benefits and who's getting help. And so if they make all of these decisions like split second, oh, you don't look like me or you do look like me, so I do or don't like you, mm -hmm. this has all these real consequences for public servants and for how services are delivered to the people. Yeah. And then it just kind of leads to, well, what if you know, we involve the public? And that's what uh, Harrison really looked into. Um, when it comes to making these big public decisions, how does getting the public involved play out? Mm -hmm. So, um, just kind of a quick defi definition here. When we are talking about citizen participation, we are talking about the publicly actively involving themselves within a, the decision-making process in the public sector. Now, this could be uh, going in and voting in their local election, making their voice heard about who they want to represent themselves, and that would be indirect citizen participation because they are electing someone to speak on their behalf and to make their, their decisions on their behalf. However, uh, our democracy is set up in a very unique way where not only do we have indirect uh, system participation, we also have the opportunity for direct system participation. You know, whether it's through uh, referendums or propositions. And, um, you know, the most common example here is what we see today is all the medical marijuana or recreational marijuana propositions that go around the board. That is kind of your modern day example of a direct system participation that is going on. And what we really want to ask is, you know, uh, what are the advantages to the uh, public participation and how can public officials utilize this um, to their advantage when it comes time to make a big public decision or a small public decision? Um, and what we, uh, what we discovered is that public part participation is a double-edged sword. There are as many advantages to it as there are disadvantages. And sometimes it seems that the disadvantages can be really worse depending on what is going on in uh, the political climate. I wish um, you could see Madison's face right now. Like, <laughs> yes, we have discovered some crazy things. Yeah, and so um, you know, one of the obvious advantages to uh, public participation is that it could help uh, dispel any roadblocks that are currently going on uh, within the decision makers' uh, fields and um, th we found that uh, the, Im the informed citizenry uh, utilizes a, a system two mindset more often than utilizing a system one mindset. Rather than making snap judgments, public servants who actively go out and help educate the citizens um, create civic participants who utilize system two that can make rash, um, not rash, rational uh, um, decisions that uh, benefit not only themselves, but the, pub uh, the public servants and the entire community. Um, now, that being said, ci uh, citizen participation does have some very vulnerable heuristics that can come into play at any time, thus creating some disadvantages. And what we found, one of the big ones, was uh, the overcoming expert intuition. The public is scared of things that they do not know and they're quick to hold on to the first piece of information that they find from someone that is claiming to be an expert and keeping to it and holding to that as true. And, it, and the associative machine is what really takes over here because they cling to the first piece of information that sounds familiar, that feels comfortable, 
And even though if the expert uh, is intentionally or unintentionally misleading, the the public has um, perceived that as rock solid evidence. And this could go be very detrimental and to how the public interacts with a certain issue. We've seen it happen with uh, very big national issues like what Madison's going to cover soon about Brexit. And we've seen it even happen with uh, smaller issues um, such as um, anti-vaccinations or medical marijuana. Um, another problem that we have found is the confirmation bias. This can be a whole paper on its own if you just include social media. The confirmation bias is huge within the public. When they are uh, looking at an issue and trying to make an informed decision about it, and given very little time to do so, they are going to uh, just find the pieces of information that immediately confirm their initial system one thoughts and beliefs. And so um, what we found is that uh, a small time window given to digest uh, information, uh, especially when it's a large amount of complex information, such as, um, uh, like again, Brexit, the, the system one is just going to immediately start grasping at whatever um, it can find, and usually at these days, it's what people can find on their phone immediately via social media, and start holding to that as fact and belief um, and when it comes time to make the decision, it's not them reading articles or journals that and make an informed decision. It's them reading whatever um, their family members or friends or uh, public figures are posting to social media. Mm -hmm. And then uh, finally, a fact. Uh, emotion is a huge driver within uh, uh, decision making. And we found that um, if presented with emotional issues, the public is not even going to try to engage system two. Um, system one is immediately going to take over because their public is going to vote with their immediate dislikes and dislikes. As you were talking about before, when, when we're in election season, it feels like everyone uh, starts to pick the col uh, their color, red or blue, and um, they're going to go with their immediate thoughts and actions. And there's always only a few in the, and it always feels like there's only a few in the population who are using their system two while everyone else is using their emotional system one. You know, I, I've never been able to trust a Democrat. I've never been able to trust a Republican. And uh, we found that um, the public servants should most likely stay away from the emotional issues if they are, want to present them to the public. Very nice, thank you. Okay, so <laughs> going on to real world examples, I think I'm only gonna go over one because we're running out of time. But um, the one that we kind of focused on that combined both the heuristics and um, focusing on civic engagement was Brexit. And so for anybody who doesn't know what Brexit is, we've been living under a rock, um, <laughs> is the United Kingdom's decision to leave the European Union. Um, so basically in 2013, the Prime Minister at the time, David Cameron, proposed a referendum to be held in order to determine if they would stay in the EU or not. And in 2016, they voted to leave the EU by a margin of 52% to 48%. And following this result, David Cameron resigned from his position. He was like, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> um, leaving the new Prime Minister, Theresa May, to propose a deal that would allow the UK a smooth transition from the EU. So um, we found a couple of heuristics. I mean, there's many heuristics that went into this. But um, one of the heuristics was like the planning fallacy. 
which um, David Cameron actually did not want um, the UK to leave the EU. He just kind of like promised that and was like, "We're gonna let him. We're gonna let him vote." And he was like, "They're gonna vote to stay." And so he kind of like trusted that um, his people would like, vote to stay because he, I guess, assumed that they'd be informed enough. Um, and intuitive predictions. Um, the British public really used their system one on this one. <laughs> um, so kind of how they were like already felt about the EU. Um, so that left, led many voters to like vote for the exit without really taking into account any of the effects it would have on them. And then the sunk cost fall fallacy, which I found the most interesting, was after they were like, we're going to leave. <laughs> Um, many began to like realize the actual implications the exit would have on them, such as trade, leading to many of them to stockpile goods, such as like groceries and medications, especially kind of now with it like really coming up. And um, so that's interesting because although they see how it affect them personally, um, when asked, around 41% would still vote for Brexit. And also what I found interesting is David Cameron was um, asked in an interview if he regretted um, allowing the vote for Brexit, and he's like, no, I don't, even though he, like, resigned after it. So I thought that was interesting. And um, this was kind of an example of how civic engagement can be bad mm -hmm. <laughs> because many people in uh, Britain didn't completely understand um, what Brexit was, the effects it would have on them, um, and it was, this is suggested due to individual interviews. Many people have come out, like, whenever they're asked, being like, I don't really know, like, what it was. Like, I don't really understand it completely, but I voted this way or that way. Um, and also, an interesting report was nearly two hours after the referendum was held, um, there was a 250% spike in searches of what happens if we leave the EU. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I think is interesting here that... Uh, that your group highlights is there's this tension, right, between uh, flawed experts, right, and then the general public being victims, like all of us, of system one and fear-mongering and experts that, are, uh, that aren't maybe real experts. But then what's the solution, right? This is one of the things that sticks in my head, just kind of abstracting. I don't, it's a rhetorical question, you don't have to answer. But like, we can't trust the public in engaging with them to do reasonable things. And we can't trust experts to do reasonable things. Who does that? Who does that leave us with, right? And, and the answer is right. It's some type of balance. Some type of balance between the public having a say and experts that are truly experts in a domain they can be an expert in making decisions. But it really does highlight how we're all victims of this, and it really creates some serious problems for public servants and for the, the quality delivery of public services. I would, I would even go on to argue that it's a three-way tension, really. Um, from our readings, we found that um, any interactions that the public had with experts um, affected their, um, maybe their hostility to the government, such as with anti-vaxxers. Um, they have a lot of trust in their experts um, about the effects of vaccines on them. And so then, for them, that in turn creates hostility towards uh, public servants and especially public health officials who tell them no 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 you need to get vaccines or else there will be another measles outbreak and so uh, like Ginny McCarthy 
the yes. leading figure on the anti-vaccination for a long time. There's yeah. a bunch of them. Yeah. I, I saw. Uh, She's the expert you want to trust. <laughs> I mean, uh, just you know. Uh, She's still alive. All right, team. We're at our 25-minute mark or so. Very nice. Anything, any, anything else in summary that uh, that you'd like to leave? Do we cover pretty much most of it? Just that public servants can improve their decision-making capabilities by they need to be aware of the different biases that can affect them, the biases that do affect them how those biases influence them and the public and then the specific in, the interaction between them and the public and how that can shift politics and you know all that in general. You're achieving so much of what I was hoping for you in this class. <laughs> thank you for putting it that way. Thank you team. Thanks so much and thank you for your work. Thanks. Thanks.